Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to our Village Church attendees, members, family members, people who come to uh, church twice a year. We call them Christers or CEOs. Christmas and Easter only. It doesn't matter who you are. We um, love you. We are really, really grateful that you are here. And uh, I know there's actually a special group of people I just want to call out. Um, and that is, uh, I'm going to have you come up front here. I'm joking. I'm not. But it's the group of people who are like, I don't want to be here. I'm here because my husband, my wife, my son, or my daughter, or my mom, or my dad has made me come here. So here's what I want to promise to you. This will be three hours and 45 minutes. I want you to buckle up. It's going to be just fine. Truly, no, we are genuinely glad you're, you're here. And uh, I want to share with you um, a story of one of my arch enemies, uh, the mini sailboat. So I, I truly, this is relevant to Christmas, trust me. So um, I truly thought I could master the art of sailing. Um, and so uh, about two summers ago, my family and I and some of our extended family were at this house in Michigan uh, near Petoskey. And so on the property was this mini sailboat. And they're, they're pretty big, you know I mean? They're not like little, little dinky little boats. I mean, these things are pretty sweet. So about 24 hours into doing this, um, I, I was pretty convinced you could pay me professionally to do this. There is, there's no, like, there's no sea I cannot conquer. So I, I had this great idea to take my children out with me. And uh, you can see next this picture. This is my bright idea. And so there I am, and there's the mini sailboat, and there's the lake, and the lake goes off to the right pretty far away. And uh, so I, I put this rope on the boat, and then I had a, a, a tube in the back, and I took, at the time, my four-year-old and my six-year-old and my seven-year-old nephew. And I thought, I am, after all, the best sailman ever, right? Is that how you say sailman? I don't know. So sailor, whatever. <laughs> I'm the sailman. So I thought for sure, I am, I'm just going to rock this. And so we're going, and the wind is, is going strong. And then all of a sudden, we are, I don't know, probably a half mile out from shore. And there's just no wind. I mean, it just dies. Well, nobody trained me for that. Of course, now I know you're supposed to have a paddle on the boat. Now I know. So we are in the middle of the lake, and a half hour goes by. And at this point, I'm, I'm yelling, okay? I'm thinking, will my voice carry over the water about a half mile? Brian! Brianne, and I think I see her like, you know, like this big in the distance, possibly sleeping. I don't know. And uh, the kids are like, Dad, is everything okay? And I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. And about an hour into this, I'm, here's what I'm thinking. Their sunscreen is wearing off. It's sunny. It's in the 80s. Um, we are really, really hungry. We're thirsty. It is their nap time. Parents, can I get an amen? Have you ever put a child in the middle of a lake in the middle of nap time? Put two of them there. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die. Like, this is it. Like, so we're an hour in and my anxiety is going through the roof. And if you don't know me, like, I'm not the most anxious person in the world. Like, my motto is, it'll be okay. It'll just work out, right? So I'm sitting there and about an hour, hour and 15 minutes into it, my daughter says exactly what I'm thinking. She says, hey, daddy. Yeah, honey. Are we going to die out here? <laughs> Yes, you're going to die a slow, painful death under the scorching heat of the sun. No, I didn't say that. I said, we're going to be, we're going to be fine. And we're about two hours into this. And uh, truly, I'm just thinking, this is the end. I'm going to be that guy who dies on a lake 
with three kids. And then the seven-year-old says, I can swim back. And I'm like, if you swim back, you don't have a life vest. Now I know. Don't tell anybody. But uh, you don't have a life vest. If you don't, if you don't make it, then I'm going to have to go get you. Then I have a four and six-year-old sitting in a tube, and then they're going to jump out. Like, this is not going to be good for anybody. So I'm sitting here, and I'm just thinking to myself, I, I need to be rescued. Like, I'm thinking there's got to be a jet ski. There's got to be a boat. There's got to be a human. And let me tell you, nothing, nothing. In the middle of a summer on this beautiful lake, you would think there'd be people everywhere. There is no one there. And I remember just pleading with God, bring me a gust of wind, do something. And then about an hour and 45 into this thing, a gust of wind comes. If you're been on a sailboat, basically what happens is the thing goes, you know, like the big piece of metal. I don't know what it's called. That's how great of a sailman I am. The big piece of metal comes, boom, and I'm not looking. Bam, hits me in the head, splitting headache. Then I'm sitting there and I get stung by a wasp. How are wasps in the middle of a lake? No idea. True story. And uh, then my kids are like, you got stung? And now they think everything is a wasp and it's going to sting them. I mean, parents, you just get this world. It's really an aggravating situation. I want to rewind with you um, 700 years before Jesus was even born. I want to tell you the story of what has been going on in a prophecy that we've been preaching on over the last four weeks. And his name shall be called, fill in the blank, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Prince of chaos. Good. So, no, peace. Um, so we're in this prophecy, and here's what I want to do with you. I want to help you understand some of the context that's going on in that prophecy, because that was a promise given to a group of people who desperately needed to be rescued. And so Israel was one nation, and shortly before this prophecy, um, they were in the middle of a civil war. And you had the north, and you had the south. Remind you of anyone? And everybody thought God was on their side. And so you have the north and the red and the south and the purple. And shortly before this prophecy, there was this evil juggernaut called the Assyrian Empire. And uh, whatever category of evil you have in your brain, they're probably worse. And so the Assyrian Empire came over and without really even trying too hard, took over the northern kingdom. And so now this prophecy in Isaiah is written to the southern kingdom. And it's written to the southern kingdom. And uh, it's basically a prophecy of a group of people who are desperate. So their king, his name is King Ahaz. He makes this deal with Assyria. Pop quiz, village church. Are God's kings ever supposed to make deals with foreign nations? Answer, no. It is a sign of a lack of faith. You need to trust God in these circumstances. So King Ahaz makes a deal with Assyria. And when you make a deal with Assyria, it's not like, hey, it's going to be a trade agreement. It's sort of like, we won't kill you. Give us all your money and do whatever we say. That's basically how the agreement went. And so God's people are oppressed. Um, they are suffering. And so we get to this uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, and what I want to do for you actually is give you a snapshot of some of the emotional experience of what the southern kingdom was going through. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read for you the words in purple, and, or purple, yellow. I'm not colorblind, but it's yellow. So the words in yellow, and I want you to just feel what this group of people might have been feeling. Gloom, anguish, shame. They walked in darkness, dwelt in a land of deep darkness, the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, the boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood. And so this is, this is the context. This is their experience. And so like us Americans, we are insulated. Like this is not, like our worst, our worst pain, our worst moment, our worst cultural experience right now, it doesn't even, it doesn't even touch this. So this is kind of hard for us to emotionally engage with, but this is, this is where they're at. 
But we just drew out some of the negative words. So now what I want to do with you is I want to read to you some of the same words in the same verses, but I want to show you what they're actually saying. No gloom. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The way of the sea was the path through which marauders would come in and attack. The people have seen a great light. On them has light shone. You, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil, the rod of his oppressor you have broken. And so this promise comes at this time. And God breaks through this insanity and this chaos and this fear and says, here's what I want you to know. I get all of the emotions you're experiencing. I get what's going on here. And there's going to come a day I am going to intervene and I will take your anguish and your gloom and I will make it joy. Well, then he goes on. For to us, a child is born. And this is how it's going to happen. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder. Basically, what he's saying is that oppressive arm of Assyria will have no more power, authority of you. They will be under the thumb of King Jesus, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And just two chapters before, the author of Isaiah had already been preparing the people for a child that was going to be born, and he says this, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and she will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I want to tell you how I think the southern kingdom of Israel received this. God, that means we have to wait for a child to be conceived, born, raised, build a military, and then do this. We don't have that much time, because our problem right now needs to be resolved stat. And they truly believed to their core that the greatest problem in their life was Assyria. All they could see was their present pain. All they could see is that this, this is the end. And then here's what happens. The entire generation of these people who received this prophecy die. In two generations, Assyria is taken over by an even more evil empire, Babylon. And Babylon comes through and overtakes all of Israel. And if you are anybody anybody who is part of God's people at this time, you would probably step back and say this, the Lord did not keep his promise. He said he would give us peace. And now we are being overtaken. And the people that I love the most are being killed and they are being exiled 900 miles to the east, modern day Iraq, and they're being taken away from their families and generations now are being separated from each other. God, if you're good, if you loved me, you would enter into this situation and you would resolve it now. And here's the deal. God apparently felt like they had a much bigger problem than Assyria or even death. And so here's what I want to share with you, what I think probably happened. I think every, every person in that first generation who died The moment they died, they very quickly realized one thing. Assyria is not even close to being my greatest problem. Because what happens when every person dies, um, you get perspective, right? Everything in your life that you thought was bad and hard and terrible, kind of you get an eternal perspective on things. You see them for what they are in the global eternal context. But when you die and you stand before a holy, righteous judge, you will realize this. You have to be forgiven. You have to be. 
So we fast forward 700 years and every single generation of Israelites waiting for the fulfillment of this prophecy don't get it. And then they die and then they realize, I have a greater problem than Rome. I have a greater problem than Greece. I have a greater problem than Babylon. I have a greater problem than Assyria. There's something far more dangerous and far more looming. And that problem is very simply this. It is a sinner standing before a just and holy God without forgiveness. And so you get this perspective as, as, you, as you look back over the scope of eternity. And so we look and now 700 years later, Jesus is born. And he's born into a context of oppression. So it's not Assyria, it's not Babylon, it's not Greece, it's Rome. And Rome is overseeing all of Israel. We'll say oppressing all of Israel. They still are a people of exile. They still are a people of oppression. They still are a people of suffering. They're still a people waiting for the Messiah. And the majority of the nation has lost its faith. The majority of the nation doesn't really truly believe in the core of their being that God is really going to save us and redeem us. And then Jesus is born. And all of these miracles happen around him. He was born of a virgin. Um, really interesting, awesome things happen all surrounding the birth. There's angels and magi and all this really neat stuff. And, and then Jesus grows up and then he gets killed and there's no military. Uh, Rome has not lost any ground. Um, and it seems like this guy who claimed to be the Messiah where all these miracles happened around him didn't do a thing. And so can you understand, if you're looking at this from the perspective of a first century Jew, Jesus was a massive disappointment to them because what did they believe was their greatest need? They believed to their core their greatest need was freedom from Rome. And then they died. And then they realized that their greatest need was not freedom from Rome, but it's forgiveness from God. So every human being on the planet comes to grips with this. And I love this. The genius of God. The genius of God is he didn't give them what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. How many of you have kids who are wanting ridiculous Christmas presents? Mine want a dog. I know that sounds not ridiculous to many of you, but I'm thinking, I'm going to get stuck paying for this dog. I'm going to get stuck picking up the poop. I'm going to get stuck doing all this stuff. Can I get an amen from every mom and dad whose kids ever said, I'll do all the work, right? No, you won't. It's a total lie. So, um, but like kids want things but it's oftentimes not at all what they need. And this is just kind of the state of humanity is that we believe that our greatest pain in front of us is our greatest problem. And what Christmas do does, Jesus comes in and he says, I'm not gonna resolve your greatest pain right now. I will one day, don't get me wrong. Um, but I'm coming right now to resolve your greatest problem. And your greatest problem is that you are a sinner who is before a holy God. And one day, whether in the next five minutes or the next five years or 50 years, you will stand before that holy God. And Christmas is a proclamation to us that God has come to resolve a problem far greater than ISIS, far greater than all of the suffering that we're going through. Because so what if you're freed from your suffering, but you're not freed from the wrath of God on the day of judgment? And so Christmas is just this declaration that God is up to something different than what most of us are up to. Most of us are trying to make life easier God is up to honestly doing something far deeper and far more beautiful. He's saving people from their sin and he's transforming their inner person from the inside out. And I wanna to read to you a passage from Romans chapter five. Here's what it says. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I just wanna pause. I wanna read anything else. I want you to just look at that. So here's what my challenge is, okay? My challenge is I'm a pastor. I want people, you know, I like people. I want them to be happy. And at the same time, I read the Bible and the Bible says, if you're not in Jesus or trusted in Jesus, then you're actually God's enemy. 
that's actually one of the hardest doctrines to really communicate and grasp sometimes because what I realize is that when I communicate this, this message is butting up against a cultural theology of God that says God loves everybody equally. God's never mad. He's just kind of a pushover and you can do whatever you want and it'll all be fine in the end. And when you open up the Bible, that's not really the story you get. When you open up the Bible, you meet this holy and righteous God who I want you to catch this, acknowledges the sinfulness of humanity but loves us so much that he would make it so simple and so easy to be completely forgiven of our sin. So I love that even though that God is just, he is love. And if you leave here thinking anything other than God loves you and has made a way of salvation for you through Jesus Christ so you could be freed from your sins, then my fear is I have not communicated the beauty of his love as much as I want to. And so we have to hold as preachers two tensions. The righteousness of God that he is a just judge who must deal with every sin and every infraction like you would expect any good judge to do. And at the same time that he loves us so much. And he loves us more than we could possibly imagine. So this awesome just God gives his son to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And this is the greatest part, right? Every version of God on this planet, except for the Bible's version of Christianity, was going to tell you this. If you're good, God will love you. If you're good, your good works outweigh your bad works, then you can go to heaven. And the Bible just speaks with honesty and clarity and says, you'll never be good enough, sorry. Um, I can look at my, my daughters and say, try climbing um, out of that water and getting to shore. You'll never do it. You'll drown before you get there. It's just not possible. And so here's what God does. He, in love, tells us, you can't do that. If, it were, if, if you could, then I'd let you, but you can't. And so the only way you're ever going to be forgiven is if I pay your price for you. Your debt's just too big. You can't do it. So we get to Christmas, and God is just screaming to us. Yes, it's true. Sin has made us God's enemy. But he loves us so much that he is not content to sit back and just let it be so. And he has given us every opportunity to simply be reconciled to himself and to no longer be enemies, but to be sons and daughters of the most high king and the greatest dad you can ever possibly imagine. And so I get on Christmas to look at you and say this. If you trusted in Jesus, you have been rescued. Your greatest problem in life has been completely resolved through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you just don't like God, you don't like Jesus, you might, many people actually on Christmas, I've had opportunities to talk with people. They're upset with God because God hasn't performed the way they would expect that he should perform. And I get that, and that is hard. But here's what I want to say. God loves you so much. And whether or not you agree with the way he has dealt with your life or not, what he has done is he has resolved your greatest problem. And he has given you complete freedom. And here's what he promises you. One day, I will come back. I came the first time to deal with sin, your greatest problem. Then I will come back a second time and I will judge and I will carry all the world's governments on my shoulders and I will rule with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So that day is coming. But this is the day that the Lord has come and he has said this, I have dealt with your fundamentally greatest problem. So I wanna ask you, what are you rescued from? Have you been rescued from your sin? And when you rescue somebody, there's another part to this. What are you rescued to? And those who've been rescued by God are given forgiveness, freedom from sin, the Holy Spirit of God inside of us who transforms us, eternal life, the ability to stare death in the face and say, you have nothing on me because my destiny is 100% secure. 
All the greatest enemies of mankind, sin, Satan, and death are now under the thumb of Jesus and every believer who now is the Holy Spirit of Christ. And so I just want to look at you, Village Church, and friends, and families, and CEOs, and Christers, and say, we're so glad you're here. But Christmas, at the end of the day, is a reminder that God invaded earth to rescue us from our greatest problem. And some of you, I wish I could look at you and say that your greatest pain that God's going to get rid of right now, and I can't do it. You can go to other churches in the area that tell you that if you come to God, he'll make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. I read the Bible. It doesn't say that. But what I can tell you is that God will never leave you nor forsake you, and that salvation is free for anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. So some of you might be wondering, did my kids die? And the answer is, they made it. <laughs> Barely. After a couple hours. <laughs> and... Uh, it would be great if the end of the story was somebody came along and swooped in and saved us. Oh no. What happened is I finally got so far away from our home that I could barely with the tippy toes of my toes, my fingernails, finally get a little bit of sand. And I got out and I think for about three quarters of a mile hauled this boat through reeds and you know that lake water that's really disgusting and slimy and goo you know that stuff through that. And uh, it was, I think, four something in the afternoon when I got home, which when you're in the, under the sun with three kids feels like six years, you know, a little dramatic, I'm sure, but that's what it felt like, right? And, uh, and then I see my wife and she says, how are you doing? And I'm like, for real? Did you notice that your kids were gone for three and a half hours? And she's like, you've been gone for 45 minutes. And I'm like, uh, I think we have a little bit of a disagreement here on this one. <laughs> and now my kids will never, ever, 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 ever go on a mini sailboat with me again. But mark my words, I will one day master the mini sailboat, and, uh, although I will never get paid for it. Father, I want to just come before you again and say, um, truly, I'm so grateful that you gave Jesus. Lord, I'm so grateful that for hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, um, you were telling us about how this was going to happen. And Lord, even as we read the rest of Isaiah, we see that our greatest problem is, again, not foreign nations, but it's our own sinful hearts. And Lord, we, um, honestly, for hundreds of years, your people missed it. And every once in a while, there was somebody who would see the bright truth and the glory that one day a Messiah would come and didn't lose faith. But Lord, we just do confess that sometimes when it takes a long time to have a promise fulfilled, it's easy to lose faith. But you always keep your word. You never fail us. And so God, I want to thank you that at the right time you entered in and you resolved and rescued us from our greatest dilemma and you took us who were your enemies and you died for us and you resolved our sin issue and you forgave us 100% completely, not because we worked for or because we were better than anyone else, because we trusted in Jesus. Thank you, God, that one day Jesus will come again. And so Lord, this Christmas, may we look back and look forward because this is just the beginning. So thank you for being our rescuer and our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.